Hello, welcome to GovGuys, a podcast brought to you by two of your friendly neighborhood bureaucrats. I'm Mr. Hertzler. And I'm Mr. Crowder. And today we're going to look at the unofficial fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. This episode's meant to be quick, so let's go ahead and get into it. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, enter we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. Government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. This is the GovGuys Podcast, Episode 6, The Wolves of Washington, The Bureaucracy. When we're discussing the bureaucracy, we're talking about the millions of Americans who work across the three branches of government and help make government work. That's right. The job of bureaucracy is to help with the day-to-day operations of the government and to, among their most important tasks, implement and carry out public policy. Public policy? So we're going to be using that term a lot today. So let's go ahead and define it. Hertzer, what is public policy? Yeah, this is the moment where we have our uh, Pee Wee Herman's Playhouse. The, The word of the day is public policy. Uh, Public policy is a set of laws, regulations, and guidelines that are meant to address real-world problems. So yeah, most obviously, this means the laws of our country. While legislative branch is in charge of creating the laws of the country, they do not actually possess the power to enforce these laws or to see that they're carried out. That power actually lies with the executive branch. So it, it actually takes a certain level of cooperation between Congress and the president to have somewhat of a functional government which is not always a given yeah the divided government is more and more common these days which can lead to issues passing laws or seeing that they are carried out yeah well congress has the power to create laws the so-called power of the purse and that's the power of spending borrowing and collecting taxes they don't have quote the power of the sword which is the power to carry out and enforce laws Theoretically, non-cooperation between the branches can lead to some constitutional issues. And if Congress passes a law, the executive branch could make the decision to not enforce it. Yeah, the constitutional basis for this is found in Article 2, Section 3, which states that the president shall take care that the laws are feasibly executed. Because of this wording, take care rather than something like must ensure laws are faithfully executed, could be argued that the president could choose not to enforce the laws of the country. Yeah, and you see this from time to time. A good example from our last episode was the idea that the executive branch does not have to enforce Supreme Court decisions, such as Andrew Jackson not following the ruling of the Supreme Court in regard to Indian removal. But before we get far ahead of ourselves, we need to simply say there is a range of ways that the president can choose or perhaps not choose to enforce the laws. And that's when the bureaucracy comes into play. The president hands down newly created laws to his various departments to put these laws into work. These departments, be they energy, transportation, education, whatever, implements the law. And this idea of implementation of the law has led many to treat the bureaucracy almost like a fourth branch of government. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting, uh, I was actually having a conversation about this with a student the other day. Um, they were asking about signing statements. They were re-looking through. Like signing statements for the president is really important, especially when it comes to implementing laws, because this is kind of the president's voice. He just doesn't sign off saying this is going to be law. This is where he can make notes 
to the bureaucratic agencies of what part of a law he likes, which one he feels like is more important to enforce. Um, so he can he can say, hey, I like that this part is great, but you don't have to go so hard on this part of the law. Yeah, and that's where you used to have like the line item veto, which was very quickly declared unconstitutional uh, back, I believe, during the Clinton administration. But the president used to basically have an option to say, you know, I like this, so I'm going to approve this, but not approve this. And, and as you can imagine, it became really kind of uh, convoluted really quickly about, you know, what part of the laws were going to be carried out to fruition. Speaking of things that we like some parts of, but not all parts of. <laughs> <laughs> we would we would like to uh, give everybody a Christmas present this year and introduce our, our special guest on our, our first, first ever first special ever. guest to the GovGuide podcast. Please welcome Mr. Dan Roseman. Hey, everybody. I'm so glad to be here. It's good to have you. Uh, so do you want to talk about yourself a little bit and give a little bit of background? Hey, so some of you know me and some of you don't, but I taught at South for the last nine years, and now I am what we call a content coach with the district. And what that means is basically I go in and I go to eight different schools and I help social studies teachers out. The reason they're bringing me in is because that means I am the most bureaucratic bureaucrat in this conversation. All three of us are government employees. All three of us serve a role in the state. So the problem that we serve is that there's all these kids that are born without knowing things, and we help fix that. Well, some, when I say some, we, sometimes. right, when I say we, Crowder and Hertzler help fix that because they actually have classrooms and students in there. I don't have classrooms and students in there, so I'm the most bureaucratic bureaucrat of all. Also, if you're wondering his credentials, he is the OG government teacher at South Iredell. Yeah. Yeah. When we brought the, the subject back, he was the first. Let's go ahead and throw the quiz question out to Dan Roseman right away. Iron Triangle. College Board tends to love the Iron Triangle. So, like, what are the three parts of the Iron Triangle? You know, I'm so glad you asked about the Iron Triangle, especially because I've almost forgotten what it is because I haven't taught this class since the 2016-2017 school year. But there's three parts, Congress, interest groups, and bureaucracy. Of course, interest groups aren't even technically a part of the government at all. They just show up and try to make things happen. Yes. Uh, the biggest thing that interest groups are going to do, perhaps, in terms of government is, um, you know, money. I, I think that's fair to say. They have their own agenda, as do really all parts of the Iron Triangle. Uh, but the way interest groups play a role in government outside of possibly influencing policy is really influencing congressmen to put it into place uh, through, we'll call it financial support. And and. This is an important idea to understand about the Iron Triangle, not just the three parts of them, but how they interact together. Uh, Hertzer, ultimately, if we're talking Iron Triangle, what are they What are they doing? What realm of governance is this important in? Uh, most of the time, if we're talking about branches, it's more important in the legislative branch and making the laws, trying to get public policy created. Um, for example, uh, to, to make things a little bit more clear, I, I sometimes like to let the kids know that interest groups are one of the points, but sometimes you can really consider yourselves part of the interest group area um, because the interest groups are the ones trying to push for new laws or regulations to be created. Um, so, so you, so it's almost like that that opening part of the legislative process, you know, coming up with ideas or. Um, coming up with solutions to fix problems that then will 
will go on the different arrows of the Iron Triangle. So, so if you have a problem, you take it to Congress, and then Congress can come up with a, a, a bill to help solve that problem. Or if you're upset enough, you could go straight to the bureaucratic agency, who will then go to Congress to get them to fix a solution. Yeah, it's really important for us to understand how these three parts really interact. And I think it's easiest to start with Congress because Congress is a topic we've discussed and kids tend to have some idea about how Congress might interact with those around them. But when it comes to Congress, again, we're, we're really focused on the idea of public policy here. What Congress might do toward interest groups or toward the bureaucracy is really important. So for Congress, their influence of the bureaucracy is really going to be through funding. I mean, that's really the big thing. Again, Congress has the power of the purse. If let's say you have a Congress that really doesn't want to have, I don't know, an EPA anymore, right? They could completely strip the EPA of most of its funding, which doesn't eliminate the EPA, but it certainly makes it much less effective at doing what it's meant to do. But yeah, yeah, um, funding all the time. Uh, not just Congress can do this. The president, remember, who has a big role in the budget can also make suggestions to Congress on what he wants them to fund or not fund. Um, remember the OMB, the Office of the Management Budget, will send Congress the president's recommendations on what should be funded and what shouldn't be funded. Yeah, that, that can also change a whole lot with, especially in divided government, let's say, they don't have to take any of the ideas the president has put forward. And, you know, that's what makes gridlock such a big part of politics today. You know, even if, let's say, last two years, you know, Joe Biden has had government that's all under the Democratic Party um, for the, you know, legislative process and the executive branch, still has only been able to do so much because even within your own coalition of a party, you might have disagreements that make putting budgets into place, putting policy into place tricky. Yeah. How does Congress influence bureaucracy? Um, we, we talked about funding. We talked about them creating the laws that they have to enforce. Um, but why would interest groups talk to the bureaucratic agencies or, 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 or vice versa? That's truly a great question. So at the end of the day, interest groups, are groups of people with an interest. I know that sounds super obvious, but it's important. It's a group of people who care deeply about something that they believe the government should um, protect, should fund, should do whatever, be a part of, and they don't feel like it's going to get enough attention unless they do what they call lobbying. Um, and so they're going to come in and get very, very active. And they tend to be very partisan. So as an example, a very popular conservative interest group is the NRA, the National Rifle Association, and a very popular, more liberal interest group is Greenpeace. Both of them are filled with people who are not elected officials. They are organizations who do not receive government funding. They have to raise their own support to try to make things happen, and they push for things to happen. So, for instance, if Congress sounds like they're going to pass a law that tries to restrict gun ownership, the NRA, which is deeply invested in the Second Amendment, is going to try to fight against most regulations, uh, or at least a lot of regulations, because they want to make sure that people have that right to bear arms. Whereas Greenpeace, they're going to be very active, concerned about pollution, global warming, 
Um, and so they're going to look at anything where maybe corporations are polluting too much or maybe even vehicles are polluting too much. And they're going to try to make things happen so that we can preserve our environment. And so both of these are groups that work independently of the government and that they're run by people who are not government officials, but they work with the government and that they try to influence it directly. And they really are quite effective organizations. And those are not the only two by any stretch, but they're among the two most well-known and hyper-partisan groups that, that people would be familiar with. You have interest groups obviously acting in their own interests, whether it be, you know, the NRA or Greenpeace or any number of interest groups. And they're going to lobby Congress, obviously. That's a big part of it. They're also going to give campaign contributions, and they're also going to actually offer their electoral support. You have a lot of these interest groups that have a huge following among the public. They actually send out little flyers uh, right around election time to say, here are the people that we endorse. And that endorsement power can actually hold a good amount of sway on, on certain voters. Yeah, they'll also create political ads for them as well. Um, you, you see a lot of your political ads on television are not even from the candidate themselves. It's from a, a, a an interest group, and it's supported by that candidate. There's actually a running joke about interest groups and their political contributions. So some of you may or may not be NASCAR fans. I'm actually not. But if you've ever seen a NASCAR race, you'll know that NASCAR race cars are covered with images of their sponsors. So you never have to worry who you never have to wonder rather who is sponsoring who uh you know that you know somebody drives the m&m car does m&m still sponsor yes. i don't know uh or you know stp so there's all these companies and there's kind of a running joke and you'll see this in political cartoons sometimes that in reality someone in congress should come with stickers for their sponsor so that we know who's actually trying to put them in office so sometimes you'll see a political cartoon of a congressman or congresswoman, really they're dressed in their political garb, but in reality they have stickers on them just like they're in NASCAR. As if we haven't heard that term quid pro quo enough in the last couple of years in politics, this is one of the important ideas about how Congress responds to interest groups. The interest groups are not just giving money and support to these candidates for nothing. If you get elected into office, there's some expectation that you are going to make legislation that's favorable for them or perhaps limit oversight. You know, if we're talking about Greenpeace, for example, if they're giving money to we're probably imagining a Democratic candidate, assuming that Democratic candidate gets into office, they're expected to introduce legislation uh, that that's going to be favorable for the environment. And the same thing with NRA. If if the NRA is giving financial support to most likely a Republican member of Congress, they're going to expect that there are very lenient gun laws put in place, if if any, or or in many cases, limited oversight in uh, gun making and legislation. So Hertzler, how about you take the third branch? How how do they play a role in this iron triangle? Well, first and foremost, the bureaucratic agency is where the law is the final destination of a law that's created by Congress. And it's up to the bureaucratic agency to then create a way that this law is going to be enforced. Now, there are some guidelines that, that Congress states that they have to enforce, but the bureaucratic agency is the one that's actually going to come up with this is how it's going to be enforced. This is possibly the punishment if if you violate said law or this is the stipulation that you have to achieve. So they're the ones that, that have to constantly communicate with Congress to make sure that what the policy that they are supposed to be enforcing is 
then executed the will of Congress, but also for the will of the people. Because if if the bureaucratic agencies do not do that, it could lead to unrest in the people. The law could then be challenged by the Supreme Court if it's not seen as valid or constitutional itself. So th they have to be in communication with Congress consistently, uh, making sure that what Congress wants them to enforce um, is enforced. And on the other hand, they speak with the interest groups because they are trying to make sure the interest groups understand the public policy. Sometimes bureaucratic agencies will less, it sounds shady, but will give special favors to the interest groups to get them on their side, to get them to, to play ball with the policy. Um, sometimes they'll, they'll limit the regulation of it to a to specific company. Let's say if it's something dealing with business, they might lower a tax on a business to get them on their side. So, so it's all about trying to get the public policy rolled out and, and liked by the American people, but also by the other branches of government. Now, Mr. Hertzler, I'm sure you're certain that Congress would never be shady. Okay, maybe they would. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's an old phrase about kind of the smoke-filled back room where laws get made and stuff like that. And there's definitely some truth to that historically and most likely still very much uh, in the modern age in which, you know, laws are drawn up by oftentimes shady deals. And we talked about log rolling before and, and stuff like that with, I'll vote for your thing if you vote for mine. And Quid pro quo. Quid pro Same quo. Thing. Absolutely. It's this idea of throwing around political capital and perhaps getting special favors or votes in exchange for signing on to certain legislation. And congressmen are not unique to that. As you know, you have the bureaucracy and interest groups playing a role in this as well. Like they're absolutely have been instances where people leave their positions as Congress people and, and almost immediately get a job with these interest groups. This is something it's called a revolving door and they use their contacts. Like I just left Congress. We've talked about this before. Virtually 95% of Congress gets reelected every single time. So if someone leaves voluntarily, they know full well that there are a good number of contacts and people, friends that they can go back to and say, Hey, We've met before as as colleagues, but now let me come to you with this great offer from the NRA or from Greenpeace or, you know, Planned Parenthood, any number of interest groups that are out there. You have a lot of congressmen that leave to join them and then use their previous contacts to make those interest groups even stronger and more represented in legislation. Yeah, that's a good point that when you quit being a congressperson your your political career sometimes is never over there's always someone that could use your services in being an inside person in congress yeah and, and so you know this is one of those controversial things about maybe politics in general and as we get into bureaucracy some of these same connections are made as is a lot of people uh, who are part of the bureaucracy especially like cabinet secretaries have to be sworn in by the senate at some point in time, they're probably going to continue their political career in some different sphere, which oftentimes becomes these sort of controversial situations. We'll get to it later when we when we get really into lobbying and lobbyists, but there are some regulations to limit the turnaround from you being a lobbyist to being a congressperson, try to filter out some of your connections, but you're always going to have connections with, with other people. Let's talk about the controversies within the bureaucracy themselves, because 
I do want to start by saying that many bureaucratic agencies and especially departments of the U.S. government are fairly well liked across the American public. We had a bell ringer that specifically looked at this. The most popular, Dan, I'll just throw this out there. What do you think the most popular bureaucratic agency is amongst the American public? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not the DMV. We're, we're looking at national. Oh. It falls in the realm of bureaucracy. It may not be okay. full form. My guess would be the FBI. It's actually the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, are they even technically government anymore? Yes, they're they are, they are they're not they're not um, they're not as directly a government agency as they used to be, but they're still very much linked with the U.S. government. They're somewhat. There is more private oversight. Yes, but it literally takes an act of Congress to change their schedule. In fact, I think a few years ago they tried to set it to where they did not deliver mail on Wednesdays petitioned Congress and they were denied. Yeah, uh, it sounds right. Uh, there, There's a lot of controversy within the workings of, of the mail service. One of the big things that reasons perhaps the U.S. Postal Service runs at a, a deficit each and every year outside of being a service is just the fact that one of the parts that Congress put into place in the last, I think, decade or two is that you have to basically prepay for anyone's retirement in the U.S. Postal Service, which just leads to like you all of a sudden have to pay a person's retirement all all up front, which is going to cost for, you know, hundreds of thousands of employees. It's going to cost you billions a year. Right. But as we get into the bureaucracy itself, even at the state level, Dan, you're, you're kind of going with the point with the DMV. Like why do people maybe not like the bureaucracy overall? Yeah, and so actually the DMV is a classic example of a bureaucracy that people like to criticize. Um, to be fair, it is a state-level bureaucracy, like you had mentioned, um, but it is something that we all have to deal with if you want to get a license, if you want to make sure that the roads are paved and all kinds of things like that. And the DMV gets picked on because it is notoriously inefficient. Um, and so one of the criticisms is that its inefficiency is a product of the fact that it is a government system without the private over oversight um, of things like that. So the idea is, you know, if you are a private company and people do not want to use you, they stop using you, you go out of business. If you're a bureaucracy, people do not want to use you, well, you're stuck. That's just the system. Now, all that to say, I think we recognize that something like the DMV has to exist, but it is a running joke. I mean, if you've watched Zootopia, who do they have running the DMV? Sloths, right? Um, so again, I know I'm probably making too many pop culture references, but um, I, I love, so if you watch Parks and Rec, I love Ron Swanson because Ron Swanson is a bureaucrat. He heads up the Department of Parks and Recreation, but he's a full-blown libertarian who thinks that everything should be privatized. And if you don't know that's a lot of irony built into the show, you're missing out on a lot of the humor because he's a bureaucrat that thinks his job should not exist. And so you guys know that there's kind of a running joke that sometimes I get frustrated with government offices. And again, there's the irony because here I am as a bureaucrat. And whenever I say something about the DMV running poorly, I always say, oh, yeah, we should have the government run more things. <laughs> But the reality is we do need the government to run some things, and that's just the way things work. Yeah, and, and back to the point I was bringing up, even though people are going to have negative run-ins with bureaucracy in general, people still seem to like most of the services that they do provide. Like take the Postal Service. If if I were to say Hertzler, 
I want you to deliver this letter to my parents in California. Oh, and I'm going to pay you 50 cents. No. Yeah, right? Like, uh, in, in, even though it gets frustrating, especially around this time of year with the mail service, stuff like that, like, it's still a pretty incredible service. Like, I want you to take this letter across the country for 50 cents or this box of stuff across the country for $15, right? It's, it's And that still, letter will probably get there in a day or two. Yeah, and it, it's pretty remarkable when you think of it in that way. But on the negative side of things, you know, you you might have people who never go to the post office except for this time of the year, and they're like, wow, this is such a huge line. I'm just trying to buy stamps. Why is this taking so long? Right. So so there are two sides to every interaction that you might have with the bureaucracy. And, and, and when we get to especially people running into these kind of negative connotations of bureaucracy, you have this concept of red tape. Dan, do you want to take red tape and talk about red tape? I would like to make a point real quick. Okay, go for it. Uh, Roseman said it best also with the DMV. I mean, obviously the DMV is its own entity. It's not public, uh, has its own private business. It's, it's, you know, it's a government run business, you know, with the postal service also, it, it, it does play a service that you don't have to use the postal service. It's something that's not required to us to use. So if you don't like it, you know, you can always pay a little bit extra to FedEx something or use uh, UPS or XPO or anything. DHL the Express the, is still running, right? DHL, the redheaded stepchild of, of services, right? Wow. <laughs> Speaking of red things, yes, Crowder, you did mention red tape. And so the idea, guys, and you've, you've probably all heard this phrase before, I can almost promise that you've heard your parents complain about red tape in the living room at some point. Um, but the idea behind red tape is those built-in inefficiencies. So it doesn't literally mean red tape. Sometimes red tape refers to extra paperwork that has to be filled out before you can get something. Uh, sometimes it has to do with extra approval or a long wait time you have to have. Um, I'm trying to think of a great example. I, I got one uh, because I just okay. went through yeah, this. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, I was gonna in, say uh, building or construction. I, I just put in a house um, and, you know, when, when you are putting in a house, there's a lot of things that you have to do really quickly. Um, on your end and then you submit all this stuff to your local and county offices waiting for a building permit and then you sit there and wait and wait for them to approve that you have your septic tank in the right place or that the the place where your house is is a certain number of yards away from the the property line uh so 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 red tape gets annoying that that it's all these little steps or or sometimes it's little payments that you don't realize that you have to make uh, to, to accomplish something. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So they are annoying, but at the end of the day, they exist to make sure things are orderly. And sometimes that just takes time. Yeah. Speaking on the, on, of orderly HOA Crowder. Do you want to, you how is that red tape? Uh, <laughs> HOA is your most local bureaucracy. If you, if you want to make sure that you, uh, get criticized for not mowing your yard exactly when you're supposed to, or if your mailbox is too tall, or if you put out a flag, that's like the wrong dimensions, they'll get you. What if you built a fence that was pre-approved and then after putting the fence in, the HOA got angry about it? Too soon. <laughs> <laughs> but but this gets to the idea of red tape. And, and Dan, Dan really did say it best that even though some of these situations, these individual situations are annoying, it is understandable why you don't want, you know, I'll just say some random like Uncle Brian is is building a deck off his house you know and we don't want to just say oh he's got it 
you know, there, there probably is a good reason for historically, you know, having somebody who's an expert come and check and say like, yes, this is up to code because at the end of the day, some of those things can end up causing, you know, somebody pain, either, either financial pain or oftentimes like they could get injured or hurt. If, if something a classic historical example of that on the other end is the code of Hammurabi. So in the code of Hammurabi, <laughs> excuse me, there were no building codes, but if a builder built a home, the home collapsed and the homeowner's son died, the builder's son had to be put to death. So I'll take a code that's maybe a little slow over that. Yeah. Bureaucracy's gotten better over time in a certain ways. World history references. I love it. I, I, th Kente, spell Hammurabi. <laughs> Did you say Harambe? <laughs> Too soon. I, I think we, we've talked about some of this public versus private uh, sector as to why bureaucracy can be controversial. And I think one of the things we've mentioned throughout this program that people have criticized government for is just the amount of it, you know, uh, fair, fair or not. I think a lot of people are going to say the government has gotten too big, but I think what we really want to maybe look at regarding the bureaucracy. And one of the things that perhaps is most controversial over history is, is this idea of the spoil system. Yeah. So the spoil system is a very historical idea. We, we don't, I'm, I'm sure it's still prevalent, but it's, it's harder to, to do uh, nowadays, just because of what we're getting ready to talk about once once we introduce the idea of the spoil system. But the spoil system is basically I, this idea of putting um, your your fellow friends, buddies, politicians into government positions when uh, you win an election. It normally deals with the president. So we all know that the president appoints or, or puts people in positions um, to help him out. And Andrew Jackson is the one that really is is famously uh, remembered for the spoil system. I think it was he he even said, said the reason it's called the spoil system. He's called it said the victor goes to spoil. So if I win, I get to put whoever I want in in positions that I want them to be in. And some of the negatives of this is the fact that he was putting people in positions that they had no no business being in. Spoil system you know, makes the president comfortable that he has people in his inner circle that he likes, but sometimes those people don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And so the irony, <clears throat> excuse me, like rain, right? Like rain, yeah. <laughs> the irony is that Jackson was super critical of the spoil system being used before him. Now it was called something else in 1824. He lost the presidency to John Quincy Adams, but it really came down to basically a tie and it had to be decided at the congressional level. So there was a backroom deal where John Quincy Adams had a, had a backroom meeting with Henry Clay. And then lo and behold, Henry Clay threw his support behind John Quincy Adams. Whoa. And then Henry Clay got the secretary of state job, which is a Whoa. pretty daggum good job. And so he called that Jackson called that a corrupt bargain. Quincy Adams denied it, but you know, that's kind of the idea behind that. And a, a way to think about the spoil system, and Herzl gave a great example of it, whether it's a, a, you know, an ambassador or something like that, is if you've ever heard the phrase, it's who you know, not what you know, that's the spoil system. So sometimes highly qualified people won't get a job. And this is in the corporate world, and this is in the government world. I mean, this is not unique to, to government at all. Right. The idea is that you can be qualified 
and be passed over for a job because someone who is less qualified but who knows the right person gets the job instead of you. And so that's an example of the spoil system really on kind of a practical level. In terms of looking at it from an AP government standpoint, we really have to recognize that a lot of government positions, even to today, in the high up levels, you know, the ones that may have to be approved by Congress, but maybe not the direct bureaucracy itself, uh, a lot of it is a result of political patronage. If you throw your political support behind a candidate, and oftentimes this includes financial support, and that person wins the presidency, you know, all of a sudden you get named to be the Secretary of State, as Roseman pointed out, or the Secretary of Transportation or various positions in the government. And to be fair, being a cabinet secretary doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have that level of expertise because you work with lots of bureaucrats that do. But it is an example of how political patronage, the supporting of candidates financially and electorally, can lead to you getting these cushy jobs that you would have not have had before. Another example could be kind of where you get some nepotism in there. So yeah. another great example is John F. Kennedy appointed his brother, Robert F. Kennedy, as the attorney general right after he graduated law school, before he had actually practiced law. And when people criticized Kennedy for doing that, he said, well, I can't think of any better way to get experience in practicing law than to be the attorney general of the United States. Sure, sure. And and a good thing to point out is it's, it's not bad to know people because um, I'm going to give an example of the person sitting next to me, Roseman getting the content job. Um, Roseman's very good at his job. We don't give him credit to his Thank face, you, but uh, he's not he's not just here because he, he was mandated to be by our superintendent. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but sometimes knowing people is good because they know what you're worth. So so don't say that hiring people that, you know, isn't isn't great. Um, just and, remember, and it's also it, probably fair to say that yeah, Hertzler is here because he was a student teacher of Dan and Dan could vouch for him. Mm hmm. Absolutely. I was able to say, yeah, Mr. Abbey, he does a great job. I think it'll be a great addition to the school. So, and so in that particular instance, it was who he knew and what he knew. That's when it works out well. Yeah. So in a way, I'm really the only self-made man here. And that's, uh, I'll take He <laughs> <laughs> didn't even have to take the praxis to be here. <laughs> so let's, um, let's, let's shift a little bit. Like the bureaucracy, obviously we're talking about millions of people uh, that make up the bureaucracy. When you, when you think about it, like the army, is a bureaucratic agency of sorts, you know, it kind of falls under that same sphere. The Talk about a bureaucracy you don't want to live without. Sure. The postal service, you know, we're, we literally are talking about mil millions mm. of millions and millions of people across the country that, that when, it, when it comes to having millions of people, part of government, how does this not get messier than it all, than it might already be, especially when you talk in terms of politics. What if there was like a test you had to take? Yeah. What do you know? Are you good at this job? Um, historically speaking, um, kind of the end of the spoil system um, it was a president got assassinated. Garfield? Yep. Garfield was assassinated because the, the guy that, that shot him was upset that he didn't get a government position. Um, and Ooh. he thought that the best way to get that government position was to shoot the president and the vice president would then give him that job. And according to legend, he ran away going, the job is mine. The job is mine. So the spoil system comes to an end. And, and, and Roseman was bringing it up, a test. So would you like to 
talk about that, Roseman, the, the test? Well, that's where the Pendleton Act comes in. So because they realized that it was becoming such an issue of corruption working its way into the government, and I don't want to pretend like no qualified people were getting government jobs. There absolutely were. But there was an issue where too many people were getting in because of who they knew. So the Pendleton Act created a civil service exam. And this meant that for certain bureaucratic jobs, you would have to pass some sort of exam. Now, practically, this looks like what actually Herzler just made a joke about this exam called the Praxis exam. So teachers are, are required to take certain exams to show that they are knowledgeable enough to be licensed. Now, there's two levels of it, and Crowder did take the first level. It's just that his college was so good that he didn't have to take the second to prove that he knew his stuff. And the honest truth is that he does know his stuff. Uh, but that's one example of certain test requirements or degree requirements that you really need to pass before you get that job. Yeah. And, and, and the Pendleton Act was put in place to, you know, kind of clean up the messy spoil system. And, and Dan said it very well. It's not to mean that no one was ever not qualified for the job. Uh, but but oftentimes you did run into issues where, especially with Andrew Jackson, he was naming all kinds of random people to different positions, almost to kind of get back at his political enemies uh, and kind of rub it in their face, perhaps. Uh, and, and so the Pendleton Act has made it much cleaner uh, from at least a knowledge standpoint. Now, what I was getting at earlier in regards to keeping it clean from a political standpoint is this idea of the Hatch Act. And what the Hatch Act is all about is to try to get bureaucrats to, at least on the surface, look politically neutral, right? There's this idea in the Hatch Act that you're not allowed to run for office. I'm going off the original Hatch Act. It has been amended, and we'll talk about some of those changes. But you're not allowed to run for office. You're not allowed to give money uh, or, or public support for a fine for a candidate to any position you're not allowed to use your job as a jumping off board for anyone to get endorsed or benefit from your position uh and so the hatch act is meant to keep the bureaucracy relatively neutral and it has been changed a little bit over time well it's changed to where you can give funding now that's one of the big things that they did change um you can support you can support candidates um for election and I believe you can run for local government positions. Am, am, is it, non, is it local? Non-part, non-partisan? Non-partisan local. positions. Yeah, so so you, so it does limit or it takes away some of the restrictions that the original Hatch Act did enforce. The the big the big change was the financial contributions. Yeah, yeah you can you can financially support a candidate now. Like again, at the end of the day, and this goes for anybody at any job, you can have convictions, political convictions, and give financial support to a candidate without that greatly influencing your job. And even though politics, the people in bureaucracy have jobs that are inherently political, that doesn't mean that they can't do an outstanding job at, at performing that obligation well, uh, without like being political. Yeah. Just like us as teachers, you know, especially you and I, Crowder, teaching government and politics, you know, it'd be very easy to voice our opinions on government, but we refrain from doing so yeah. Um, because it's, one, it's not the point of the class. The mm. point of the class is to introduce how government works and operates. In our positions, we do have to talk about inherently political things. And one of the things that I think that we strive to do, and I, I hope that we're successful in, is when we rip on one political party or one candidate, we tend to find another 
uh, person from the opposite side who can we can also rip on because there are some absolute good and bad parts to all political ideologies. Well, and the key is really recognizing that there are people with whom you vehemently disagree. And ultimately, most of the time, you want the same things. You want the, you want life to be better for Americans. You just have different ideas on how to arrive there. So the more you can recognize those motives for people, it works well. So, I mean, I've had students be convinced that I voted for a party that I've never voted for just because I was so intentional about being fair about their point of view and what they wanted. I guess we could still talk about waste and regulation. We have talked about regulation a little bit, but maybe the last point we can bring up is the the concept of waste and why that is so controversial, especially for bureaucracy. So, yeah, so bureaucratic waste, this idea, it kind of goes back to, you know, the Federalist versus anti-Federalist idea, big versus small government. What do we need and what do we not need? So sometimes... Uh, you know, over the last few years, uh, when we were talking about the, the the popular bureaucratic agencies, I told Dan, think pre-2020, because a lot of people started to to really rip on the Postal Service, the fact that it's not efficient, um, that, you know, why do we really need it? We have these private sector jobs that that do this for us. So why don't we just cut our losses, save some money and get rid of the Postal Service? A lot of people don't like the ideas of these agencies having so many people working for them, so many different departments uh, and wasting government spending. So uh, like, for example, one of my, in years past, I've done an activity where I've given them the 15 cabinet positions. Like, let's think about like, which one of these could we get rid of that we don't really need and save some money. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that people recognize with government waste, and I think a lot of people would agree that it is problematic, is is that there are lots of redundancies in bureaucracy. Like good example that has nothing to do with anything that's inherently political is uh, my, my father is a professor of marine biology, marine ecology. And so a lot of the things he looks at is dealing with you know, ocean science, but also the stakeholders that have anything to do with pollution on the ocean or, or fishing regulation, things like that. And, you know, even if we're looking at just the oceans themselves and management of the water, you have something like 10 or 15 agencies that all have some type of finger in this pot uh, of just something like that, let alone even more complex things like, uh, let, let's say, counterterrorism. You know, counterterrorism might be spread across the CIA, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of uh, State, uh, so on and so forth. And so there are a lot of redundancies, and I think some of these redundancies are absolutely fair, especially when you come to something like terrorism and combating terrorism, because you want to make sure there are lots of eyes on particular subjects to make sure that there's nothing that gets through. Uh, but in some cases... The redundancies that play out also result in these different agencies not necessarily meeting and discussing what they're seeing with each other. Yeah, and federalism plays a big part of these redundancies as well. You know, we have a, for example, in North Carolina, we have a Department of Transportation, and then there's also a federal Department of Transportation. There is a state Department of Education. There's a federal Department of Education. And Thanks, Jimmy Carter. Right. Sorry, that was a dumb joke. Well, yeah, okay. I'm just just saying, Jimmy Jimmy Carter is probably building a house right now. And we're criticizing <laughs> him. at ninety. What ninety eight? Yeah. yeah. But but you know, getting to it, it's the federal federalism idea. 
you know, it, if it's it's given to the states, why do we also have a federal federal agency that is also over it? Now, I I know that the, the Department of Education for the federal government is a lot different than the Department of Education at the state level, but a lot of people will see those two and be like, well, why isn't why do we have this? Why isn't it just given to the states? So hypothetically, what would the country look like without bureaucratic agencies? There's an episode of Family Guy where they get rid of government because they just feel like government's not needed, not necessary anymore, and, you know, trash isn't picked up. The electrical grid goes out. Um, there's looting. There, There's all these problems, but there's nobody there to enforce what's going on. So bureaucratic agencies are one of those things that we hate when they are doing our job against us. But if if they weren't there, society would be, you know, in shambles. Well, thank you very much for everybody who's listening. First and foremost, Dan, did you have a good time? Man, I had so much fun. Let's do this all the time. Right. Well, we've got something like, you know, 16 more episodes planned. So we'll, we'll, we'll bring you back for sure. I think uh, every, everybody give, give a little hand to Dan Roseman coming in on his day off. It's not his day off, but it works. <laughs> not even, it's not even our day off. Not it's even our day. We're here. Now. We're here. Um, but uh, th- thank you very much for everyone tuning in. The Gov guys are on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you can listen to podcasts. We're also on TikTok and Instagram. So give us a follow. Give us a like. Um, if, if you like what we're doing, give us a good review. If you don't like what we're doing, I'm sure you've turned out by now. Yeah, you don't have to listen to us. Sometimes I don't want to even listen to us. Yeah, just like the post office. You don't like it, don't use it. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on that very note, thank you to those of you who are sticking with us, who are trying their best, who are listening to everything, uh, try, trying to succeed. Uh, we are doing this for you, and we're really thankful for those of you who are using every opportunity to do their best. Have a great uh, holiday break, guys. Yeah, I was going to say, last last best wishes, best reflections on 2022. What do we got, guys? I don't know. 2022 year has been a pretty good year for me, so I'm looking forward to another one ahead. Yeah. Hi- highlights of 2022, Hertzler? Uh, some big ones. I, I, I bought a house, got married. Okay. I was, I just making sure you said that because otherwise it'd be like, this is weird. Um, <laughs> I, I moved to G building. That's weird. Um. Yeah, 2022 was a good year. Uh, just reflecting on the Gov guys itself, we've been listened to in seven countries and 18 states. We're listened to a lot in the Statesville area. I'm not sure why that is, but you know, um, yeah, it's been a good year, guys, and and we hope to make it a good 2023. So thank you very much for everybody who's listening, and have yourself a wonderful holiday and a happy new year. Bye, everybody. Bye.